0: this is anna welcome to read pod podcast
1: thank you very much right.
0: so you've already done your hobart launch for your lovely book the last of the apple blossoms how did it go
1: anna it was so wonderful i bet um, it was As people know, uh, my book came out and then we went straight into lockdown. So all of my plans just fell in tatters around me. But I was lucky it was a short lockdown, but Tasmania still kept the borders closed. And because this book is set in Tasmania and it's a really Tasmanian story because it Mm -hmm. tells the demise of the Apple Isle, you know, Tasmania used to be the Apple Isle. And I really, really needed to launch it in Tasmania and so being able to do that on Thursday night with the fabulous author Karen Brooks asking the questions I and keeping the program sensational oh, she's the good wife of Bath do yourself a favor buy the book by Karen Brooks it's fantastic you will love it and a friend of mine bought apple cakes and it was a beautiful audience it was a lovely night and my heart was happy and full
0: Oh, that's so fantastic. That's great. I haven't seen any pictures yet on Insta, but I hope that we see some. Were the blossoms out? It just, was it just beautiful?
1: Um, I'll be going down the Huon Valley next weekend and the blossoms will be out down there. I have just put up some photos on Facebook and I'll do the other socials later with the launch and photos of me oh, and Karen and the ex and all of that.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. That's so lovely. So your story opens with the 1967.
1: It was Black Tew. Tuesday. Tuesday. It was actually the first day of the school year. It was the first. Oh, right.
0: I had forgotten that. Yes.
1: Yeah. So 1967, February the 7th, 1967. It's a day that Tasmanians will never forget. It was this massive fire. One of the fire experts at the time said it at its peak, it had the equivalent force to three atomic bombs. It was that fierce. And within five hours over 60 people had died and 7,000 people were left homeless. And that's the day the book begins. And it begins with Catherine, who's a young teacher at Sandy Bay Infant School, which is the school that I attended and it was oh, day one. Oh, really? Of- <laughs> it was day one of grade one for me and Catherine in the book is a grade one teacher so what happens in that first chapter I remember
0: oh wow And
1: um, in the third chapter as well when Catherine takes the kids to the last safe home on Mount Nelson that was our house and that's what I remember as well but Catherine actually grew up on an orchard in the Huon Valley and she finds out that the fire has jumped the river And her property that she grew up on is in danger. So she races down, but she's too late. And the apple orchard is in ruins. The family home is destroyed and her brother is dead. And she vows to restore the orchard and the family business. But her father is very much against it because this is the 60s and it wasn't Mm -hmm. a woman's place to an orchard. And meanwhile, her friend on the neighbouring orchard, Annie, she has five sons and she just recently has a baby girl. She's a pretty newborn girl when the book starts and their property isn't as badly damaged. Um, And one of her husband's friends, Mark, has come down from Melbourne for a fresh tart in Tasmania. Um, But his wife has disappeared, leaving his young son in their care. And Catherine, who's who's grieving her own brother and who is a you know an infant school teacher, just takes a shine to Charlie, the young boy. And their relationship, I think, is a really beautiful one throughout the book. But because of their relationship, a friendship starts up between Mark, Charlie's dad, and Catherine that sets tongues wagging in the small community. Well, it
0: is a small town community and it is the 60s, so it was just scandalous that that they were friends, wasn't it? I thought that was really well captured. Yeah. I just loved the relationship between cat and mouse. I just, Catherine and Charlie were just so lovely together. And I think as an adult who mm-hmm. doesn't have kids, That um, relationship between an adult and a child was just so lovely to see because, of course, you've still, obviously, you've still got the love to give. It was just so beautiful to have that reflected back at me because I've had those relationships in my life and it was just lovely.
1: Thank you. It's really interesting you say that, Anna, because I don't have children of my own either. Oh. But I helped raise my niece from a very young age. So I haven't missed out on anything, you know, like the first day of school. Yeah. So, you know, that's saying it takes a village to raise a child. You and I, Anna, we're proof of that because we're we're hands-on. I'm a hands-on auntie <laughs> and we help with other people's kids. Yeah. I mean, I wish
0: I could take more credit for my nieces and nephews. They are incredible people. But it was just so great. Uh, another thing that I think that your novel does so well is reflects back to me how much the attitudes have changed since the 60s we really meet Catherine she has no agency at all I don't think she's really under the thumb of her father in lieu of her husband it was incredible it was so well done
1: yes was certainly the case for women in the 60s So, so it does start at the beginning of 1967 and the marriage bar in australia parts of australia had only just been lifted in 1966 so the marriage bar meant that if women got married they couldn't have a job they had to quit their job but there was still the rule in place that if women were working and married and they got pregnant they had to quit their job um and also all kinds of things women couldn't get loans without a father's or husband's approval equal pay didn't exist Some would argue that it still doesn't exist. But yes, I knew I had to have a really determined, strong female protagonist because those times women were supposed to get married, have kids, stay in the home, and the jobs that women could have were really limited. So I knew that Catherine was going to be a teacher because for a lot of primary producers, the truth is that the wife or one of the children goes out to work and their wage supports the farm. And it Mm. still is to this day. I was talking wow. to people just about this just last night. And teaching was one of the very few professions available to women back then. So that's what Catherine does.
0: Oh, and so even when her brother dies and she's left all alone and she wants to and she's got the tenacity to be able to run the orchard, her dad still is like, no, we're selling, it's not for you. Mm-hmm. I think, oh, God, even though her wages have supported it, all this, like, blood, sweat and tears have gone into it, I just I couldn't believe how powerless she was. She couldn't get the loan, so she wasn't able to buy it on market. So infuriating. It really yeah. made but me... That, that, yeah.
1: And the thing is, I've had a bit of feedback from people about Catherine's father, about what a hard man he was, and some have described him as a bastard and they get angry at him. But the truth is he was a product of his time, you know. Yeah. He, was a man of the age. He'd gone through the Second World War. He'd fought for his country. He'd seen atrocities. And also he is grieving. So Catherine's mother's grief is obvious and Mm all-consuming because, you know, she saw her son run into that burning house. Mm -hmm. She couldn't stop so the guilt she feels is enormous and she she does eventually recover but it takes a long time and that's the truth of it for a lot of people but Catherine's dad back in those days men just weren't allowed to show emotion or breathe or any of that stuff so he is grieving he just doesn't show it Mm -hmm. and that also is behind a lot of his thoughts and actions because a lot of time grief if it's not dealt with comes out as anger Mm -hmm. and I've certainly experienced that myself when I was Younger. So there's a lot going on for him, but it's not as obvious on the page because that's just how men were supposed to conduct themselves back then. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. I just hated him implicitly, but (laughs) of course he was grieving.
1: he was 100% grieving and he wanted to keep his his daughter safe so you know some of the things he did he absolutely thought he was doing the right thing
0: yeah I guess so it wouldn't have killed him to think outside the box though oh bless now I understand that Catherine was based on people and you've got an apple angel who you interviewed extensively can you tell me a little bit about her? Yes,
1: I already had the character of Catherine. I knew she was going to be a school teacher. I knew a lot about her before I met my apple angel. But I needed to fill in all those juicy details that I couldn't get from listening to a lot of oral histories of Orchardus and all the research I did at the Hobart Reading Room at the State Library of Tasmania. And I, look, I did so much research. It's all there on the author's note. There's a lot mm. of research. For this book. But I knew I needed to speak to real people face-to-face, ask them all the questions that I had. And it's still to this day very hard to find a female orchardist, a woman who actually runs the orchard. And I did find one. She's a former regional woman of the year here in Tasmania. And she actually runs an orchard in the Huron Valley in Franklin. Her name is Naomi Clark Port. She's a sixth generation orchardist. And I rang her up. I just cold called her. She didn't know who I was. And I said, oh, have you got time for me to ask you a few questions? And she went, sure. And now I've found out how unusual that is because she's so incredible incredibly busy. And I had three pages of questions, Anna. Three pages. Oh, (laughs) wow. (laughs) <laughs> and she very patiently answered quite a lot of them and I think I got about halfway through and she just laughed she said you're not going to need even a third of this information but I you know I just had so many questions and, and I needed to know all the little details anyway she said look when you come down the Huon Valley I will take you on a tour of my orchard I will give you an orchardist's eye view tour of the Huon Valley as well and I will introduce you to old orchardists in the area who lived through all the events that you're writing about <sighs> and I said to her wow that's incredible why are you being so generous and thank you and she said well you didn't just call me up and, and say tell me about apples you know clearly this project is important to you you'd already put a lot of work in and I really respect that and that kind of reminded me of Catherine because later on in the book Catherine comes to understand and love a couple of the the new settlers or hip, hippies mm-hmm. as they were called in the cities who come into the area and live on her orchard and uh It's the hard work of those two that wins her over and I think that's really what it's like for people, for primary producers, people who live on the land. You know, they respect hard work. Mm. So Naomi respected that in me. Catherine respects it in Izzy and Stardust. And she's just been incredible. So I'm having a celebration down at her cafe, Frank's Cafe in Franklin next weekend to say thank you to the orchardists who helped me, who sat in lounge rooms in the Huon Valley and let me ask some questions and record them talking. And some of their stories were so fantastic. There's a few anecdotes that they told me that, Ended up in the book because they were just fantastic. Too good not to. Too good not
0: to. I think on that point, this is a book that you can see that you've done an awful lot of research and an awful lot of um, hard work into. This isn't just any old novel. How long have you taken to to write it? There's so much work in it.
1: Yeah, so it took about a year to do most of the research, and then I started writing it, and then I did more research, and I had got a few things, kind of vital things, wrong. um, including grassing down orchards. I thought all orchardists were grassing down their orchards in the sixties and Naomi and they only went no. <laughs> That came in later and that made a big difference to a lot of the scenes and and how the fire went through the orchards and stuff like that or didn't. And so, yeah, mainly a year just researching because I really wanted to get it right because quite Mm. honestly, Anna, the idea of this book terrified me. I actually didn't know if I could write it. I didn't know if I could do justice to the orchardists. And I knew that I had to be really careful about the 67 fires because so many people in Tasmania are still traumatised by them. I have met people now while doing events with this book who did have loved ones who died in the fire. And what I've learnt to do at the end of a, an author talk is not just say, you know, do you have any questions? Oh, God, I know I'm going to cry. But I also say, do you have a story that you'd like oh, to share?
0: Oh, that's beautiful. And
1: there are so many people here in Tassie with stories about that day. And I've met so many women who grew up on orchards as well, not only at events, but who have written to me to oh, say you must you. have
0: heard some incredible stories.
1: Yeah, it's been such a beautiful experience. You know, I was so desperate to come to Tassie. I would have done anything because you know I grew up in Tassie, but I haven't lived here for a while, and it was just so important for me to come down here with this book and talk about it and share it in the place where it belongs. And uh, it's been an absolute honour and a blessing. It really has
0: well I think I know from your insta page that you've been there for a month ahead of schedule so that I kind of crying.
1: <laughs> so that you
0: could definitely get to visiting you could get to to do your events so really yeah this has just enabled you to collect all the more stories then it's so wonderful
1: yeah and to spend quite a bit of time down the huon valley which i just have a whole different sense of now and a real sense of connection because last time i was down there i was still researching and this time you know the book is finished the book is out in the world it completely sold out in hobart couldn't get a copy of love or money but it's it's back here now. Oh, stock- fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the news socks came stock in, in. Just, just in time for my launch and the Hobart Writers Festival and other things that I'm doing. Yeah, so that was a huge relief. But, yeah, the response, especially here, has just been loving. It has it's been just loving. It's just
0: such really. a special story. Yeah, I bet it is. I bet it is. Now, the novel is all contained. I know that you've said previously that people have been asking for a sequel, and I would love more, but... I don't think it's I think with these characters their stories you've given them the happy every year after, or we know exactly how it's ended for yeah. them. But are you do you think yeah. you will write more about the apple orchards have you got
1: I feel like my time with the apple orchards in Tasmania is complete Mm -hmm. I really do with this book because it does span from 67 to 77 and a lot happens in that time not only for the orchards but in Australia and Mm -hmm. in world history it's such a massive time of change and Mark is a musician so there's a lot of changes in the world of music as well and I really want to get that in and the book feels so complete I can't imagine writing anything else uh, set around apples but I'm definitely writing more books set in Tasmania. Oh, wonderful. This book has opened a floodgate of ideas of books set in my homeland. Oh, that's
0: so fantastic to hear. I can't wait to read more. I think this, this book had such a long gestation period for you that I was afraid that this was going to be it for your novel writing, but not at all. You've gone the opposite way. That's so good.
1: Well, I floated the idea for my new book. It's been floating around for a while, but I really haven't been sure about it. And then at the events I've done, you know, people do like to know what you're working mm. on and what's going to come next. And so the idea that I'm working on, which will be set around Lake Pedder and the flooding of, of Lake Pedder, the response has been really positive. And people who grew up in Tasmania and who remember the old Lake Pedder, they all have the same response, which is this kind of oh, yes, you know, that hand on the heart and this big sigh, and oh yes, you know, it's it's like. It's unfathomable the way that Tasmanians feel about Lake Pedder and the fact that it got flooded. And I'm going, I'm going to cry again, so I know I'm on the right track when I want to cry. Yeah. And I was worried about writing this book as I was about the Apple book, and I think that's a good sign for me when I feel mm. that fear of will I be able to write this book and will I be able to do it justice? Mm-hmm. And um, when I was working with Monica McInerney, well, actually before I started working with Monica McInerney on The Last of the Apple Blossom, I did write her an email and, and and tell her how terrified I was about writing The Last of the Apple Blossom and she said to me Mary Lou the books that terrify us are the books we must write so I got another idea for a book that terrifies me so I'll have to write it <laughs>
0: oh fantastic <laughs> oh wow so yeah you really like this is your first novel but you've been around books with the ABC your book segment for years now and before yeah. prior to that you're in bands Writing writing stories, but writing songs. I think, but what a what a way to come at writing. Yeah,
1: yeah it's been a really long journey. I have interviewed a lot of authors. I had a, a designated books and writing segment every week, so every week I would read a book and I would interview an author. And I and I tended to focus on Australian authors, so that was lovely. And I and I got to know a lot of authors through doing that as well, which was great. Um, I also started acting at the Victorian College of the Arts, and uh, the question has been asked: you know, your characters are so believable. And real, do you think that's because of your acting training that you're able to get into other people's heads? And I hadn't actually even thought of that. I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah, and playing in bands. So even though I never wanted to be a writer, and a lot of the authors that I would interview, they would say that they knew they wanted to be a writer from a very young age. That wasn't me. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. I wanted to be a famous singer-songwriter, but that never happened. Uh, and I didn't really start writing until my 40s. And uh, my memoir came out eight years ago when I was 52, that came out through Pan Macmillan called Sex, Drugs and Meditation. And with this, this is my debut novel and I've turned 60 this year. So a debut novelist at 60 and I'm proud of that.
0: Oh, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. Are you reading anything at the moment? What are you reading?
1: Oh, yes. I love reading. And I am just going to give a great big plug for Karen Brooks and The Good Wife of Bath because honestly, that it's such a sensational book. It's a romp. I love that book so much. And it was such an honour that Karen interviewed me for my launch.
0: I only just recently read it. I wasn't expecting to love it because um, I remember doing Chaucer and just being, I was just completely intimidated by it. But it was
1: such a romp. It was so fun. It is a funny book. You know? And her last book, The Darkest Shore, was so harrowing. And for her to come out of that and write The Good Wife of Bath, which is so much fun, set in the 1300s, it is based on Chaucer's mm. The Wife of Bath from the Kettering Tales. And it is a woman making her own way back then, you know, and she has certain kind of boundaries and obstacles, but she does it her way most of the time. And like you say, it's very funny as well and it was great yeah do yourself a favor get a copy of the good wife of bath by karen brooks you will love it
0: (laughs) yeah yeah, absolutely 100 percent Excellent. So I know that I read The Last of the Apple Blossoms, gosh, months ago now and I haven't stopped thinking about the characters. Is it the same thing with you? What has remained?
1: I think one of the most important things that I got from writing this story and doing all the research was this huge respect for primary producers, for people Mm -hmm. who make things on the land. You know, we go to the supermarket or the farmer's market and we buy a piece of fruit or a vegetable, but I don't know how often we think about all the work and love and tears that went into growing that. Mm-hmm. And writing about what happened to the Tasmanian orchards, you know, that we have the fires and there's a massive hailstorm.
0: Mm. Um,
1: there are all these worldwide events that cause, you know, the um, Six-Day War, so the Suez Canal is blocked, fuel mm. prices go up, freight prices go up. There's all this competition coming in from overseas where people can grow apples cheaper with cheaper labour. And then in 1973, England joined the common market and the export market for Tasmanian apples just disappears overnight. Mm -hmm. So that's when three pool scheme came in and these trees that had been in families for generations were bulldozed into the ground. It was heartbreaking. And when I was writing this, there were so many similarities going on. We had Black Summer with the 2019-2020 fires ironically we had brexit going on so Mm. it's kind of like the end of england joining the common market which destroyed a lot of australian exports not just apples and then they were trying to get out of that whole situation because the common market became the european economic union or whatever it was called yes so that was quite ironic and also we had the situation with china putting uh, incredible tariffs or just blocking Australian Australian
0: products yeah
1: and then of course we had COVID as well which decimated so many businesses on so many levels not just the primary producers you know who couldn't get pickers but so many small businesses which are the backbone of Australia and Australia's economy and that's what Catherine's orchard was. It was a small business. Back then, a family could make a good living out of 10 acres of apples. It hasn't mm. been possible for a long time. But just that real respect for hardworking people in small businesses and primary producers just trying to make a living and how hard it is and how hard it remains now. Yeah, there were a lot of similarities and echoes that are still with me today.
0: Yeah, yeah, I bet there are. I know for me with my coffee shop, I was just sobbing because it's one thing to fail through not being good enough, but it's another when it's all been taken away from you. And I felt that with COVID and I think that you explored that just beautifully with the England going into the common market and the, the exports drying up because it was through no fault of their own. I don't know if that was my frame of mind, but oh gosh, the way the hard breaking and he couldn't be there when the trees got bulldozed and oh it was just yeah. so powerful yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I've had that response from quite a few small business owners of just how it reflects what they're going through today but I would also like to say that there is a lot of hope in this book and there's a lot of love on all different levels you know there's there's Catherine and Charlie's love Catherine and young Charlie who's just a young boy at the beginning of the book and that continues all the way through there's Catherine's love The land and the orchard. Annie and Dave have this amazing love story, which uh, I just and, and also the
0: friendship between Catherine and Annie as well. That's a huge part of the book that we haven't even touched on. There's so much goodness yeah. in this book as well. It's not all destitute. and No. You
1: know, no. no. There's, there's a lot of love, There's a lot of hope. And I hesitate to use the word resilience because it's been used so much in the last two years, but there's certainly a lot of that. I oh, I really relate to you, um, what you're saying about owning a small business and it's been completely out of your hands, as it was when England joined the common market and the government just was not prepared it seemed to take everyone by surprise like the whole of the last two years has
0: mm. I know I wasted an awful lot of time at the start of COVID because I couldn't get my head around how how unfair it was like
1: and oh. fair enough too it's a shock I
0: yes. felt like I was grieving yeah absolutely well yeah. thank you so much for speaking with me Mary Lou I can't believe how grateful I am and how lovely you are Okay, so thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time on ReaderPod Podcast.